0: Welcome to the Giving Voice to Depression podcast,
1: where your co-hosts, Bridget and Terry, each week we explore a different perspective on or expression of depression because it varies in form and severity affecting us differently. Our guests share intimate details of their struggles, coping strategies and recovery. We keep it real because the struggle is real. We keep it hopeful because there is hope in spite of what depression tells you.
0: We're not experts or therapists. We're sisters and best friends who live with depression and know that talking about the illness reduces stigma and humanizes the experience, making it safer and easier to ask for needed support. You are far from alone. Hello, Bridget. Hi, Terry. This Saturday, November 17th, is International Survivors of Suicide Loss Day. Dr. John Draper, one of the nation's leading experts in crisis intervention, told Giving Voice to Depression that for every person who dies by suicide, there is another 280 who seriously think about it, but don't, because they found ways to get through the moment. He says that typically involves connecting with other people, including a crisis line listener.
1: Draper also points out that each of those 280 people represents a story of hope and recovery. He told us it's our job as a suicide prevention community to tell those stories so your listeners know there are pathways back and the people do get through it. Those stories, he says, are proof of the hope, healing, and help that are happening every day.
0: With that in mind, today we are talking to David Woods Bartley a man who has been literally on the edge of death and now offers not only his story of hope, but a formula for helping to create more of it in the world.
1: If there's such a thing as a typical background for mental health advocacy, David doesn't have it. He worked in animal care and rescue,
2: running a nationally
1: recognized animal sanctuary.
2: It occurred to me one day, to wow, I could use stories from the sanctuary as a way to take this very daunting and intimidating and misunderstood subject, make it more approachable, and then leave people with an easier way to remember the point and then take whatever the action item or the, the functional step that I found to be useful, and then they could apply it in their lives.
1: Like, for instance, the story of Adia the Goose. When Adia was brought to the sanctuary— David carried him to the edge of a beautiful pond, near which there was a water trough. Sizing up his options, Adia jumped into the trough.
2: So that confused me. I did not understand his behavior. And I think it's very common, not just with mental illness, but other sorts of behaviors that our dear brothers and sisters of the world, our brethren, they do something and we don't understand. And in that place of understanding, we as human beings, myself at the head of the line, tend to judge. And depending on how long we're in that sticky place of misunderstanding, we can become agitated, confused, frustrated, and even in the extreme, we can become angry because we don't understand.
1: Ten times with increasing frustration and confusion, David scooped the goose from the trough and brought him to the pond. During that time, his partner, did some
2: research, and found that Adia had lived his entire life in somebody's backyard, Adia had never seen a pond, Adia had only swum in a kiddie pool. And I was like, wow, okay, I get it. Now I understand. It's the difference,
1: often discussed in terms of childhood trauma, between asking, what did you do? And what happened to you? Five minutes later, as David sat by the water's edge, the goose swam into the pond on its own.
2: So, not only does understanding give us, find us on that beautiful, smooth level ground of mutuality, but I believe energetically, it creates a safe place for a being, no matter he being a brand new animal on the edge of something he didn't realize he was born to enjoy or somebody like me who manages a mental health condition, or just some other human being who's managing an issue, when we take time to discover the story, reach that place of understanding, and create energetically this, this space for them to move forward, really what happens is magic.
1: Magic, created through connection. It's that formula we mentioned earlier. With experiences like this, David teaches that curiosity is a path to understanding, and one of the primary methods of creating connection. In turn, connection
2: creates hope. And hope saves lives. In the creation of the safe place for somebody to actually unburden their soul, it can be phenomenally healing. And so that means we, everyone... You don't have to be a minister or a clinician or a police officer. Everyone is capable and qualified of making what can be a life-saving difference for another human being because we all have a myriad of ways in which we can create connection, curiosity just being one of them.
1: Recognition is another. Learning and using someone's name can counter isolation, David
2: says. A third way of
1: creating connection is expression.
2: And my belief is that we all have positive sentiments that we harbor for one another, but we don't necessarily express them on a regular basis. And it could be, well, Terry knows I love her. Terry knows I appreciate everything that she does. And I say, no, she doesn't. Or she can never hear it too much. That people need to hear this, that expression is an active verb. It's not passive. And we can express ourselves in lots of different ways. And the hallmarks of an effective expression is for it to be timely, don't wait, have it be specific, and have it be authentic. Again, it's very, very simple. And I know this to be true, based on my own experience, that when you remember somebody's name when they don't expect you would, when you take the time to resist judgment and instead create the safe place for somebody to tell their story, and when you express how you feel, it can literally change, and in the best case, save somebody's life. To be perfectly clear,
1: these are neither academic nor purely animal-related lessons for David. They're just a much more gentle entry point than starting the conversation with...
2: On August 31st of 2011, that was the day that I was going to commit suicide. It was the day that I was going to kill myself. that That's the day that the monster known as clinical depression had finally convinced me of the lies that it had whispered into my mind, not as an audible voice, but as in absolute thoughts, that I was completely worthless, ugly, grotesque, pitiful, weak, problematic, an embarrassment and a burden. And then the monster had convinced me that the end of pain would happen in the seven and a half seconds it would take for me to fall from the 730-foot-tall Forest Hill Bridge, which is located about 30 minutes east of Sacramento. And then the monster assured me that everyone— in my life would be far better off in the wake of my death and the absence of my pitiful existence.
1: A passing motorist saw him on the bridge and called 911. David describes the first responder as a gift
2: from the heavens. And his first question was, David, what does it feel like to be depressed? And Terry, in that moment, everything decelerated. And my mind slowed down because no one literally had ever asked me that question. And so I shared. And then he said, David, how long have you been living with this condition? And how has this condition impacted and shaped and molded who you are? And he said, David, what does it feel like on your worst days? Tell me, share with me so I can understand. And then he said, David, what do you want the world to know about depression? And I shared, and we connected.
1: Remember the formula, connection creates hope, and hope saves lives. Having earned David's trust and fostered what David calls hope the size of a mustard seed, the first responder facilitated a subtle but profound shift in David's focus.
2: He asked, David, what is it like to live with all those animals? And then he said, David, what is it like on your best day? And then the real question that finally pushed me back from that barrier was, David, what do you want the rest of your life to look like? And as I shared with him, I realized all of a sudden there was this change and I became overwhelmed with what I call positive doubt that the certainty to end my life was now being overwhelmed with the possibility of more life to come. And I pushed back, and I turned to my left, and I retraced my steps off the bridge. This being
1: a real story, there was a lot of real work yet to be done. David spent 15 days in a psych ward, during which he explored his family's history of depression and suicide, dealt with a violent childhood trauma he suffered, and learned, among other things, that depression was neither his choice nor his fault. He also realized that depression impacts his body, mind, and spirit. So his dedicated daily practice of self-care needs to protect and address all
2: three. So I have put my self-care on a pedestal. And so for my body, it's careful attention to sleep hygiene. It's careful attention to diet because there's more neurotransmission happens in our gut than happens in our mind, in our brain. And so I literally am what I eat. I go to the gym five to six days a week. I go outside each and every day. I see an extraordinary therapist every Tuesday. I have a Jungian psychiatrist who not only helps me with medication, but we do additional counseling. I participate now as a co-facilitator, having been a participant prior on seven different support groups. I take my meds each and every day a mood stabilizer, and an antidepressant, even on the days that I feel well. I have a committed spiritual practice with the God of my understanding, and now purposeful, mission-driven work as a mental health speaker, writer, advocate, and trainer. It's been seven years
1: since that dark August day. And in that time, David has changed many things, including his relationship to that date.
2: So August 31st now is now my New Year's Day. And every August 31st, as I did on this last one, I go back to the bridge. And I park in the same spot. And I go to the midpoint. So instead of looking down to a singular spot in the river, I look up and the view is spectacular. And I give thanks for the year that I just lived and all the cumulative years to that point. And I give thanks for the year that's coming. And it is a sacred, wonderful experience. And then when I spin around, I go toe-to-toe with the call box, and it's painted this annoyingly brilliant, wonderful yellow. And on top of that box, some amazing person had the insight to write, there is hope, make the call. And from what I understand, no person has lost their life to suicide who has picked up that phone. And for me, that is just another reminder, more empirical evidence that connection creates
1: hope and hope saves lives. Hope saves lives. I think it's the thing that does. And I think that the questions, what do you want the rest of your life to look like? And what's it like on your best day are two brilliant ways to you know, uh, uncover that little ember of hope that might still be burning in someone. I was really uh, hit by those questions.
0: I was really surprised when I heard that the words that David put to his toxic voice, his voice of depression, and how it's like pretty much the same as almost everybody who shares the actual words. So for the first time it occurred to me that maybe the voice of depression isn't very original. It's kind of spewing the same toxic
1: crap to all of us. Right. And I would think that that, that understanding would be pretty comforting because if you said to someone who's hearing it or experiencing it and it's not an actual voice, but thoughts, um, to say, I'll bet it's telling you this, you know what mean? Exactly. like how do you know? Exactly. It's like because it tells us all the same damn thing. Yes, exactly. Yes, I think so too.
0: And that sense of when one feels safe, or safety and secure, you know, mm-hmm. that creates pure potentiality, even like neurologically, you know, your brain, when it's not safe, and it's not secure, cannot fire properly, you can't learn, you can't think properly. Mm-hmm. So I like that he brings it back to, you know, safety and security, I do
1: too. And I like his, his safety and security plan, which is taking care of himself, and that involves diet, sleep, exercise, support groups, medication, therapy, a spiritual practice, mission-driven work, um, all those things. You know, we can't just say, oh, I feel better now, and then go back to whatever habits we had before that may or may not have been healthy or working for us. Right. You want something different, you've got to do something different. There you go. So thank you, David. Greatly appreciate you sharing your story.
0: And I so appreciate, David, that you're using animals as a vehicle to kind of depersonalize, yet in an interesting way, personalize these stories. It's very Aesop fable-y to me. Thank you, David.